Welcome to Meet the Author at the Apple Store Soho in New York. Please welcome this evening's moderator, DJ, music writer, and editor of the book, Sheila Burgell. Thank you, Pablo. Hi, everybody. I'm Sheila. I edited the book, Dustin Grooves, Adventures in Record Collecting. And I suffer from the obsessive, addictive, all-consuming, money-sucking malady known as record collecting. As you can see, I have my record bag here. I didn't want to leave it in the green room. You can't you know, separate me from my records. Um, in the book, there's an introduction by uh, Jeff Chairman Mao, who's also a record collector. And I think he puts the whole uh, lifestyle, um, he describes it quite succinctly and he, when he says, we hemorrhage bank accounts and damage personal relationships in the competitive pursuit of more records than we have actual remaining hours on the earth to listen to. So Elon Paz, who's gonna be up here shortly, he's the photographer behind Dustin Grooves. He's actually not a hardcore record collector, but he, um, I think he suffers from a similar uh, ailment. And that is while we record collectors pursue records, Elon Paz pursues collectors. So I would call him a collector of collectors. And um, he's gonna be with me shortly tonight to tell you a few stories uh, behind Dustin Grooves and show some videos and uh, some photos. He's traveled all over the world, spent five years photographing collectors in France, Israel, Turkey, crisscrossing around the United States, South America, Japan. Yeah, um, and he's photographed most of them in their homes in their special record rooms. And uh, joining Elon is going to be Rich Medina, who's also featured in the book. There's 11 interviews in, in, the, in the back of the book, and Rich is one of those collectors being interviewed. Um, he's a DJ, he's a record producer, he's an artist, and he's a poet. And uh, he's based in Philadelphia, and is, he's going to join us tonight. But just before Elon and uh, Rich come up on stage, we're going to show a short video. Thank you, Pablo. Sister Gina, bags tough. Seem to have this problem with this cat called Mr. Bigster. Hi, my name is Jameson Harvey, aka DJ Prestige from Brooklyn, New York. I run the site fleamarketfunk.com. Jazz, soul, reggae, funk, hip hop, all vinyl, all the time. Gonna make an exclusive mix for Alon at Dustin Grooves. Check it out. Got the thing, yeah, to make a man, 
And now I'd like to welcome to the stage Dustin Groves, photographer Elon Paz, and record collector, DJ, and artist Rich Medina. Wait, let me do it again. Ah, hello. <laughs> Thank you, Sheila. Anytime. Hello, Rich. How's it going? <clears throat> let me do it again. How's it going, Rich? <clears throat> Not so bad. Same here, thank you. Uh, thank you all for coming. Um, and uh, we're here about, uh, to talk about a book about vinyl collectors. Um, started at a, as a personal project, uh, kind of like six years ago. Uh, I'm originally from Israel, my name is Elon. I uh, grew up in Israel. Um, worked in Tel Aviv as a photographer and then moved to uh, New York in 2008. And um, I don't know if you guys remember, 2008 was uh, not such a great year here in, uh, in America. Um, so it wasn't like the best year to move here and uh, start my, kickstart my uh, photography career, which is why I came here. So, um, yeah, I came here and uh, I found myself, you know, uh, just uh, uh, jobless. Like, uh, I had no nothing to do, really. Couldn't find any jobs as a photographer. But I did find really cool record stores and really cool records. And uh, I'm a record collector. I'm a pretty casual record collector, not like uh, these two guys here, like a uh, girl and, and guy. And... Um, but uh, I remember that I was really overwhelmed by the amount of records and the, uh, the variety of records. And I just uh, started spending my time in record stores instead of uh, looking for a job. And started, started like, uh, building, rebuilding my uh, record collection and spending all my money. Um, so, Tropicalia in Furs. This is like the first 
record store that actually that I was like that I felt this is home. Joel uh, Joel Stones, the owner, is a Brazilian guy, and he was the first guy that kind of like you know embraced my idea uh, to photograph record collectors, and uh, you know he was like. Uh, He's been like a really good friend since then, and um, this is where the entire project started. And uh, I have to say that, th that the book itself, uh, I, wasn't in I wasn't envisioning this project as a book. It was just like a photography project, just to kill some time and do something productive with my time, you know? And uh, I never thought that this would be a book eventually. Um, so yeah, so it started here in uh, New York. Uh, unfortunately, the, the store is not there anymore. It closed down. Uh, but the spirit of Joel is everywhere. You know, he's a legendary, legendary guy. Um, yeah, that was like the, the first shot that I took for, for the project. Uh, since then, I, um, you know, I started blogging about it. Um, very casually, I created a blog. And I called it Dustin Grooves. And, um, you know, s soon enough, I uh, started having, like, really good um, vibes out of it and really good reactions from people. And I found out that I'm kind of, like, you know, tapping into a, uh, a community that was, like, hidden. And uh, it was... Uh, nobody really knew what's going on. And people, you know, a lot of people started seeing these photos and reading about the people's... Uh, collections, and this is how the blog became, you know, gained popularity, and uh, I started getting, you know, into more, uh, looking for more people, and people started like, reaching out to me to be photographed and to be documented. So, um, yeah, um, it was a quite a, that was like uh, 2008, and uh, I started looking for people from all kind of uh, you know works of life, DJs, 45 collectors. This is my Matt Finewine. Uh, he's here from Brooklyn. Um, you know, people whose houses are covered with records. This is the archive of uh, contemporary music here in uh, downtown. I guess uh, yeah, yeah, it's downtown New York. Um, over a million records. And it's open to the public once a year for a big sale, uh, record sale. And it's kind of like this guy, Bob, is basically trying to have, to build like a Noah's Ark for records and uh, preserve two records of each, you know, two copies of each record ever released. I don't know if it's possible to do, but, uh, you know, it's a good, uh, good intention. Um, Joe Bassard. Uh, I call him the king of 78. There is a full interview with him in the book. Um, he's from uh, Frederick, Maryland. He has, a, he, has, he has a podcast here in, you know, uh, on iTunes. And uh, all he plays, all these records there are 78 RPM 10-inch records of early blues. Really interesting guy, a real character. Cut Chemist uh, from L.A., Big record, uh, big collection as well. Um, then I moved to uh, kind of like, like looking for after you know documenting a lot of like big collections, you know, big walls of records. I started looking for um, 
more focused collections, like people who have smaller collections, but are, they are very theme, themed. So this guy, Alessandro, on the left, lives with his parents in Italy, in Tuscany, and uh, collects uh, colored vinyl. And he has uh, a Guinness record for most colored vinyl in the world. Jan Kugelberg, uh, really interesting collection about uh, homemade uh, records. He made a book about it, and these are, for example, four different records with the same generic sleeve. It's really interesting. Uh, Rutherford Chung, he, he has a collection of, I think, over 900 uh, Beatles White Album, the original White Album, like the stamped one, I don't know, uh, the, I think the first million, the first run, uh, the first million records were all marked with a number. And they're supposed to be quite rare, so uh, that's all he collects. Uh, Dante, a kid from uh, Philadelphia, and uh, as you can see, it's all about Sesame Street. And that's it. It's pretty cool. Uh, <coughs> a collector from uh, Holland that spe uh, specializes in uh, Bollywood and Tamil funk. Really, really weird and amazing rhythms over there. Um, Michael Kumela with a really special collection. Uh, but you know, it's it's really. I mean, I would have to do like a totally separate presentation just to show his stuff. But uh, this is one of like the uh, funny ones, the Nothing Record album, which is basically nothing. It's a you know, it's a real record, <laughs> side A, side B with silence. So I don't know if you can. I don't know if you can see the 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 track the track list, but it's uh, the sound of silence, the Nothing Jam, uh, Schubert's Unfinished Symphony. Yeah, it's really good. Um, okay, a dramatic reading. Um, and then I moved on, you know, and, and you know, as, as, as the project um, evolved, you know, I started getting more intel from more people, and it was kind of like the go-to place. So, you know, it, was, it, it started to get, to get, like, easier to find really cool collections. And then, th then I found this guy in, in Paris, uh, and he only collects... Album album covers, sleeve uh, album covers, but only defaced ones. <laughs> only defaced ones, you know, like, and that that's all he collects. He doesn't care if the record is there. And I have to say, I have to admit that this is like one of the most bizarre and wonderful collections that I've photographed. I really enjoyed this one, and he's he's got a full basement full of these. Phil Collins, <laughs> I love this photo. Um, People who look like their records. <laughs> Collectors with their kids. Jeff Mao here with his kid. And this is something that I noticed, that kids really love the Ramones. I don't know, you should try it. If you have like a toddler at home, play the Ramones and see, see the reaction. It works. Um, some Jews, you know. Gotta have some Jews in the book, right? I'm a Jew, so I'm allowed to say that, right? All right. Um, people who sleep with the records. 
And this is kind of like another, um, just a way, uh, the book is kind of like um, filled with these kind of like collages that I made. And basically I started doing these just because uh, it's kind of like a technical way to uh, overcome the uh, amount of information in a, in a tiny room. So it started, it started like that and then it evolved into like nice uh, collage techniques in the book. Um, Sheila, you know this style better than me. I mean, how would you call... Um, I don't know, I just put this photo because it's really beautiful. <laughs> you know, the apartment and the style is just... Uh, I think it's like 50s, right? Yeah, 50s. Uh, records that are really, really, like, they, you know, really, they don't even exist, really. So these are kind of like, you know, uh, White Stripe. I think they have only 10 copies of this one. Uh, some politically incorrect <laughs> records. <laughs> um, buy this new best-selling LP. I don't know. Uh, yeah, so I don't know. I have this attraction to um, politically incorrect um, things in general here in America. So um, I've got a few of these in the in the in the book. Some records who uh, that can help you in life. Yes, some more help. Uh, I went to Africa with uh, Frank Gosner. He's a DJ and a collector that digs, that goes and salvage records in, from Africa. And I uh, uh, was lucky enough to go and dig with him and document his, uh, um, his journey. And in this case, uh, we're seeing Philip here, and he's... Uh, he hasn't listened to his records for 30 years, just because you know the the turntable, the turntables that he had just broke down. And uh, when we went to uh, see him, uh, we mentioned to him, you know, that we want to listen to his records. And then, uh, and then we, I came back with a with a portable turntable, and we made a listening session. And this is uh, that's his reaction. There's a full story about that. Um, Alexandra Henry. Um, a female representation in the book that I was kind of like trying to, um, you know, um, how would you say? I was trying to kind of like uh, do some kind of like a reverse discrimination, like add, find as many female collectors, but just because they're because there's not. Um, We're a lot more rare, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. So, um, Margaret, really knowledgeable girl with amazing taste in music. Oh, who's that? I know this dress. I thought I'd wear the same dress tonight. <laughs> yeah. But Do you want to tell us something about, <laughs> about, about, about this Can I just say that I combo? don't collect Megadeth or, Beach or uh, Barry Gibb records that he basically made me pose with both of them. I am a big Megadeth fan, but my record collection is 1960s female-fronted pop music from all over the world. Those are my... Guilty pleasures. Yeah, and that's that's another uh, in full interview in the book uh, with Sheila. Um, I don't know. I'll, I'll let you have some, a moment and read. You know what's going on over there. But I mean, people with very strong emotions to uh, Lionel Richie. So much pain to give. So little talent. <laughs> I don't know. It's embarrassing. Poor thing. 
Giles Peterson, just uh, one of my you know uh, idols, you know, growing growing up in Israel and um, absorbing his you know music and learning uh, music from his radio show. So that was like one of my um, holy grails when I was collecting collectors, getting Giles in. Another one is uh, Keb Darge, a character and an amazing, amazing uh, funk and uh, North and Soul collector and now also Rockabilly collector. Uh, African Bambara's collection, one, another... Um, that's like um, in the process of being uh, moved to the Cornell University and being cataloged. Um, during uh, 2014, no, sorry, 2012, um, we took uh, we did a road trip across America for uh, it lasted 40 days and it was specifically to uh, you know uh, start to gather uh, material for the book. So this is in New Orleans, and this is Yulia digging for stuff for records. Uh, and basically, this place is is well known. It's been dug, you know, uh, and picked over. And people say, yeah, you can't find anything over there. But I don't know. I mean, you walk on records there. Everything is like you can't find an empty slot. So I think you know, no matter what, if you dig deep enough, you'll find some gems over there. Uh, some record dealers in Detroit. Uh, a lot of the uh, design elements were like really interesting for me, and I was really trying to, uh, you know, find really cool. You know, as a photographer, as a visual person, you know, I was always attracted to visual stuff. You know, visual elements. Um, that's another one. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, once again, design, op art, the CTI collection, which is all about photography. Once again, collages that I started, like, you know, using. And Questlove. Yeah. All right. And uh, one of the one of the collectors in the in the, in the book, I um, I had the honor, you know, to um, go visit and visit his uh, dungeon. Um, and he's sitting right here with me, Mr. Rich Medina. Thanks for coming. Honored to be here. Thanks. And uh, yeah. Rich, that's a good photo of you. Yeah, yeah you're a good it's looking. It's all in dude. the lens. It's all in the lens. Yeah. All right, so we're gonna advance into this. Yeah, we are, we're gonna start uh, talking to Rich about sex. I think, right? <laughs> yeah, we, we're not here to talk about records. Yeah, or this book, is not about records. We're going straight to sex, and that is uh, that is a baby makers box you see right there. And uh, in in the interview in Dustin Grooves with Rich, he says some people may have been conceived to the joints in this box. So I think uh, I'd like to hear more about what those joints are, Rich, if you wouldn't mind sharing the secrets. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, baby making music is pretty, 
self-explanatory. You don't have to be a, a rocket science to figure that it involves uh, the Haida Salami game. And uh, all the seven inches in that box are the beginnings of my seven inch record collection. And those records came from my older sister who was 18 years older than me, who is 18 years older than me. Uh, her first husband was a local VFW Elks Club DJ in Lakewood, New Jersey. So as from this big, I was watching him pile these records into uh, one of those pleather suitcases with the buckles and he would carry it flat on the side so he didn't tip them over and keep the to put toilet paper rolls down the, the spindles to keep them standing up. But, you know, this is we're talking about the 70s in the Elks Club and in the VFW, so it's a lot of slow dragging. It's a lot of grab ass going on, a lot of Colt 45, a lot of situations. And uh, the majority of the records in that box come from my childhood. And uh, yeah, there was definitely a lot of babies made to them tunes. Can you tell us some names of those records or do you have any, any of them with you maybe? Uh, man. <laughs> Isley Brothers, Between the Sheets, uh, Rick James and Tina Marie, Fire and Desire, Roberta Flack and Donnie Hathaway. Could go on and on and on. I have a, a practical question about, you know, seven inch box like records and, you know, baby making. How do you uh, how do you operate them, you know? Can you operate them while, you know? Like it takes, what is it, like two two minute uh, ambidexterity. That's uh my ten dollar Obama word for the day. <laughs> All right. So um, I, before this uh, event, I watched a TED talk with you about Philadelphia, and you were talking about your history and you, uh, you know, starting out with basketball and then going to college and then working kind of a, in a cushy corporate job and then giving that all up for, uh, for digging and DJing. And I wonder if you could speak more about how you, tra how you kind of transitioned from like, you know, so many different lifestyles and, now, and being now at the artist, DJ, and producer. Um, I was always... Uh a DJ. I've been actively DJing for money, however minuscule, since I was 10 years old. I don't, I don't know any better. Like I said, I, I grew up in it. I grew up in the 70s in Lakewood, New Jersey, 45 minutes south of Manhattan, 45 minutes south of the, the birthplace of hip hop, 50 minutes north of Philadelphia where, no, believe it or not, a great deal of the early hip-hop records that we all know and love, KRS-One, MC Light, Roxanne Shante, all those records were on pop art records, which is the original Rough House records. And you may know of Rough House records via the Fugees, for lack of going further into a rabbit hole. But those records were pressed, made in New York, or made by New York artists in Philadelphia. And where I grew up was planted smack dab in the middle so the entirety of hip-hop culture the entirety of b-boy culture we were swimming in it because we were the halfway mark between philly and new york so i never really knew any better you know i happened to be an athlete i happened to play basketball i don't know how but in high school i could belch on a paper and get an a uh, ended up going to school and playing ball and um 
playing Division One basketball at Cornell University, it's virtually infeasible to do anything but study, sleep, eat, and go to practice. So rather than throwing par rather than DJing parties, I threw parties, and uh, kind of kept my hands in the mix then. And we brought Stretch and Bobito, Biz Marquis, uh, Curious George, Beat Nuts. Um, a lot of New York acts, and this is between 88 and 92. So, you know, I kept my, my hands in the mix via that. And um, I got out of school, played a one relatively mediocre season of semi-pro ball, and uh, got that reality check, like, yeah, dude, this is why we told you to get your ass through four years and get that degree, because you can't run and jump your whole life. All right, I can't run and jump my whole life. So I took a job in Philadelphia, and uh, I hated it. It was kicking my ass from day one. I went from playing semi-pro ball to waking up at 7 o'clock in the morning, answering to a dude that I felt I was smarter than. And, um, but, you know, it's the golden handcuffs. It's corporate America, right? You know, you got 401K, dental benefits, eye benefits, suit? break a fingernail. You a can suit? just walk up in the hospital like, yo, clip my shit, son. Were you wearing a suit? Suit, company suit? car, big-ass brick phone, all of that. But, um, you know, all, and when I got to Philadelphia and had the job, the first thing I did before I put a single piece of furniture in my apartment was go home, get my turntables, get my records, and set that up. So I was sleeping on the floor with a $40,000 a year job and a half a living room wall full of records and turntables just trying to get that, trying to get my head around what was going on in my life. And so what made you give up the corporate life for the DJ, musician, production, party throwing life? Uh, what made me give up the corporate life is the knowledge that I didn't come from money. So the idea of hustling and figuring out what you need to do to keep the lights on and put food on the table. I, I learned that as a child. And luckily for me, one of the things that I really love was playing music for people. And I've always known how to find money doing something that I also happen to love. So when I got to the point where I was making 500 to maybe $1,000 a week playing three or four nights a week, at house parties and random setups here and there. And um, the guys that I was running with at the time, we had a mobile DJ crew. So one of us would be at Temple doing a step show. One of us would be at LaSalle. One of us would be at Drexel. We were pooling our money and buying a mountain of records. I'm like, yo, you know, I could, I could pay all my bills this month with this money that I made from playing music for people. Fuck this job. <laughs> Eventually. And I split. And it worked. <laughs> and I broke out, you know, and, and never looked back. And it was probably one of the smartest decisions I ever made. And so you brought a bunch of records with you. And I'm going to ask you the worst question I can possibly ask record collectors. I know the pain. And that is, can you single out one record just to speak on and why it's special to you? You can do that. Awesome. Yeah. Brought a couple of things. The record that uh, I would like to talk about is an album called Quiet Fire by Roberta Flack. 
Many of you may know of Roberta Flack because of a song called Killing Me Softly that was redone by Lauryn Hill. Some of you also may know of her by a popular dance record called Back Together Again that she did with an esteemed gentleman by the name of Donny Hathaway. This record is particularly touching to me, one, because this record belonged to my mother. So I've had this actual piece of vinyl since, what year is this record? 1971. So I was two years old when this record came out. And this record has been in my family since that time. Uh, the reason it's a big deal to me is because of a tune called Sunday and Sister Jones. And Sunday and Sister Jones is the story of a reverend's wife who is watching her husband die over time. And uh, coming from a Baptist church family and a Pentecostal church family, uh, my the grandparents on each side of my family are preachers, choir directors, all the elders in my family are men of the cloth and women of the cloth. So Sunday and Sister Jones has always been a very important record to me because it was a, one of the most beautiful segues between secular music and gospel music perspective for me growing up. And it was a record that I heard a ton. Um, and there's other gospel influenced records on uh, Go Up Moses, Bridge Over Troubled Water, See You Then, Sweet Bitter Love, To Love Somebody, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow, which some of you know via the Supremes. And uh, yeah, Sunday and Sister Jones is a record that I always turn to whenever I'm missing my family or thinking about my mom or thinking about my family. I play this record in my house regularly. And uh, that's my story, I'm sticking nice. to it. Thank you, Rich. <laughs> So I think we're now going to open it up to uh, some questions. What is, to you, the best song you've ever heard? Best song I've ever heard. Best song I've ever heard is a song called Gentleman by Fela Kuti. And the reason being is that it's, uh, it's about as close to the James Brown directive of pro-black musicianship and songwriting outside of America that any of us would ever hear. I mean, you have your, we have a plethora of fantastic musicians and fantastic songs, but Gentleman is very, very striking to me because we talk about crime here and we're not gonna get into a rabbit hole, but talk about crime here. We talk about black on black crime here. It, it, black on black crime don't get no blacker than it does in Lagos, Nigeria. At the time where the man was saying what he was saying, the size of balls that you had to have to make such a statement under such a ridiculous, oppressive, colonizer-influenced police state is just mind-boggling to me. So when I realized that he wasn't speaking Patois, that he wasn't speaking Haitian broken English, that this dude is from Lagos, Nigeria, and he's saying to the system, I, I am not a gentleman. I am an African man, the original, speaking to the system in the way he did and the way it rallied the people and the, the protests and situations that it set up to have the voices of the, of the downtrodden heard was really, really striking. 
and it's just a, a beautiful piece of music. Hi, how you doing? My name is Helen, and um, I'm a disciple. Uh, <laughs> I'm down from back in the day. My question to you is knowing um, the progression of music and how easy it is for it to get lost, how do we keep this for the youth? How do you propose that you're going to be able to pass this on so that it stays with us? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think that there's, there's a lot of layers to the, the answer to a question like that because the tradition is being carried on because the club is, is a church for people that don't go to church or people who do go to church but also need to come to a secular church and let that other monkey out. So that, that, that world is an organism in and of itself and will never disappear. It's like roaches, it's perpetual. We are not going anywhere. One of the ways that we carry on the legacy of paying credence to analog music is coming into a place like this that has none and talking about it. This is one of the ways that we break ground and say, if it wasn't for analog, there would be no digital. I think everybody wants to learn something, but not a lot of people want to be dictated to or preached to. So it's a slippery slope of how to disseminate your information or get the point. You know, it's like slipping vegetables in a kid's food, you know, chop them up and slide them in the food. He don't know. He just has seven heads of broccoli. Yes. You know, how do you do that here? How do you do that with regard to this dynamic? Because there are people on the older side who are like, oh, these kids. And then there's kids who are looking at us like, man, this dude always want to talk about cassettes and tapes and shit. There's a huge gray area between those two points, but I think it takes champions on each side to come together and realize that it's a symbiotic relationship. They, they function with and for each other. I have a computer with me. I have four jobs this weekend. I play a little digital. I play a lot of analog. Anybody in there who's paying attention will hear the sonic difference, will feel the metric difference in how I count, how I deal with my math and my transitions between songs. And those are the people who are, you know, that's the two kids in the class that you touch. It's a class of 20 kids. You touch two of them. They go back and tell five friends. Those kids get touched, and then it spreads, you know, but it takes, we got to keep throwing these pebbles in the water, you know, and, and make it have waves. Otherwise, it's just a complaint session. I want to add something really quick, and I, I don't have the uh, the depth and you know the the um, the vocabulary that you have, but I have a really simple um, example um, to answer this, and it's just like it happened here on stage where Rich was showing us uh, the Roberta Flack album that was passed to him um, by his mom, and you know. I'm pretty sure that you know that this this record is important to you, and you, and one day, um, Kamal, your son, is gonna get get it from you. You know, like as long as you and we, as we still have that like tangible, you know, object that carries music, that carries culture, uh, and carries our history. So, um, I think that was like a, a live example for, for that. You know, that how that knowledge is carried uh, away, uh, carried out. And uh, it's also what 
all the people in this book, you know, and in this project are basically doing, you know, um, they're like preserving music, preserving history by maybe, maybe a selfish, you know, um, will to have records, to have stuff, but they have an additional, you know, um, role in, in, our, in our culture, in our society is to preserve, you know, preserve the music. I mean, we're we're out there playing our records. When I I'm a DJ and I spin vinyl only, and and I, especially for me as a woman, I want other women to know, like, get in the game, girls. You know, this is a fun hobby, whether it's hobby or a lifestyle, um, and it's happening. You know, I get I'm in touch with many women who kind of say, oh, you've inspired me to start collecting, and and then we lead by example, and I think that's it's happening. And Dustin Grooves is a big is pushing that. You know, this book being out there showing that record collectors are not just like these old you know white guys like hermits, you know, that live with cats and, and don't take showers very often. Like, we're, we're uh, <laughs> we have it together, you know, we're not all, we're not all uh, deranged. <laughs> I know it's, uh, it, it sounds like a mainstream question. Where do you think the industry will go? Where do you think, what's going to be the next step? What's, what's going to be the next format? How people are going to interact with music? Where do you think creators and developers of technology are gonna take it so the public has more quality of feeling of it? That's a great question. Um, I, think the, I think the answer to your question is beyond the recording industry. I think the people who make TVs are gonna put slots in them where you can put a card in it and put your music from your computer onto your television and vice versa. Uh, instead of just having a stereo, a, you know, a, a generic stereo in the kitchen, your stereo is going to be able to provide you with options to purchase music or have music solicited to you, like advertising the way you'll be listening to a music station like Pandora now, and an advertisement comes up for something that doesn't have anything to do with music. I think music will begin to be promoted in that way. I think that the, the, the model that was set in place by Apple about decoupling albums and selling singles for 99 cents digitally has sparked a, 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 an avalanche of, of progress with regard to how technology comes into play and how you may or may not interact with your music. So, uh, you know, it's only 2015, you think, whoa, we're in the future, but you know, what is it going to be in 2090? Who knows? It's, it's going to be Mission Impossible, you know? Everybody's going to be Tom Cruise, like, swiping in the air. I don't know. You know, it could be. You know, I mean, it's not, it's not far-fetched. It, you know, people had cell phones. People had tiny, tiny cell phones in movies in the 80s, too. You know, now we got little tiny, skinny cell phones, and everybody's like, yo, you don't got a tiny, skinny cell phone? You still got a flip phone? Flip phone? You know, people are saying that about other technology the same way we're talking about analog music versus digital music. And it's not really a versus thing. They are different formats, like you said, which was a, a great point to make up front. It's just a question of format and what is the most convenient manner. You know, I, I'm not one of those record purists that says, well, all he has is MP3s. You know, maybe his budget says that all he can get is MP3s. And in his MP3s, he probably has 25 to 30 times the analog music that the analog guy who's passing judgment 
on him as and a wider taste palette and a wider cultural experience and all the things that music gives us no matter what the genre no matter what the format music is one of the most giving sources of information in the world because it's the places where the musicians and the songwriters say all the shit that's going on in our heads that we can't say quite as well or quite as pretty or quite as to the point that's what music is for it's feeding us information it's fortifying what we think and it's teaching us at the same time i think the formats are going to continue to expand you know we went from cd to dvd to blu-ray we went from records to cds to mp3s i don't really know what's next but i know that it's going to be cheap and it's going to be more accessible than what we have today and it's pretty damn cheap and accessible today All right. Well, thank you all for coming tonight. <laughs>